This episode of Crisis Talks is brought to you by Noggin, integrated incident management software that you can trust. For more information, go to www.noggin.io forward slash crisis talks. When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. General Omar Bradley once said, amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. I don't think anyone else embodies that saying more than the following guest on Crisis Talks. Imagine having to plan and prepare for an operation that is two years away. How would you select the right people and the equipment needed for the task two years before that task is required and ensure that they are all in position and capable to perform that task on that given day? In this episode of Crisis Talks, I interview Charlton Clark. Charlton Clark is the General Manager of Antarctic Operations and Safety at the Australian Antarctic Division. In this fascinating discussion, we talk through some of the extreme planning considerations they apply every day to preempt, prepare and prevent crises in the world's most hostile environment. This episode is a must listen for anyone in the logistics, safety and risk fields or anyone planning or operating in remote environments. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome along to Crisis Talks, Charlton Clark. Charlton, thanks for joining us today. Grant, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Now, please tell me, how did you become involved with the Australian Antarctic Division? When I left the Army many years ago, I was looking in the paper for a job, as you do, and in the Australian reading, I was in Melbourne working for the Australian Wheat Board as their logistics strategist and saw this ad in the paper to be the aviation manager for the Australian Antarctic Program. And Growing up in Hobart, thought it would be a good attempt to move back home and take up an interesting job. Luckily enough, they offered me a position for a two-year contract and started working in the aviation operations section, and that was 20 years ago in May this year. I haven't been at the AAD that whole time, but that started an interest in Antarctica. I had an opportunity to travel down there a number of times, and over the years I've just progressed through a range of roles at the AAD, which now sees me looking after the operational side of the business. So can you explain what your role entails now and and how that works from a safety perspective in particular? The the Australian Antarctic Division leads Australia's Antarctic program and we administer 42% of Antarctica, the Australian Antarctic Territory. We operate a number of bases in Antarctica where we conduct our research. We operate ships and planes and an airport, um, a series of skiways that link all our stations and I look after the operational side of the business and typically we send down four or five hundred people to run our bases and do our research in Antarctica. So for many of us, Antarctica is a bit like, probably like Mars, you know, it's so far away from what we could ever imagine. Can you explain what sort of a hostile environment it actually is? 
First of all, it's a long way away. So to get there by ship, for example, to get from Hobart to Mawson Station, our further station, it's about 14 days by ship through the Southern Ocean. And it's the most hostile ocean on the planet. Casey, our closest station, if you picture a map of Australia, then look at Tasmania. And then Casey Station is actually west of Perth. So it's a long way south and west of Perth. It's four and a half hours to fly down there if you're leaving Hobart in a jet. We fly Airbus A319s and Air Force C17s down. It's about a four and a half hour flight. We've built an ice runway down there, which is on about a glacier about 500 metres thick. It's three kilometres long. And when the ice gets cold enough, you can land wheeled aircraft on that runway. So that's the quickest way to get down there. The first time I went down, it took about 16 days to get there by ship. So it's a long way to get there to start with. Then when you get there, typically in summer, the weather is the best time. Obviously, you've got long daylight hours. The temperatures are fairly benign, sort of minus 15 to zero. And then during winter, it's a different ball game. So obviously, you don't have daylight to any great extent. During the middle of winter, it's very dark and the temperatures drop significantly. So inland, we're talking minus 50s and the coastal stations, it's minus 20, minus 30. And it's really the wind and the temperature together combined. So Casey Station earlier this year had winds of 230 k's an hour and quite often blizzards can last for several days at a time. So you work when the weather's good and when it's not good, you bunker down. Well, bunkering down, would no doubt we'll be starting that sort of period now as we're uh, rolling forward into winter. What does a day in the life look like for the expeditioners down there? It depends on the role they're playing. And if you picture an Antarctic station is like a small remote town. During summer, the population's around 120 people. Everything from the life support, the catering, the medical support, the engineering, the power supply comes from a small team. Typically, people are up around 6.30, go about their trade business, come back for smoko. They'll have a range of roles that might be technically related, so keeping the power going. Obviously, keeping the heat on is important. Keeping the water liquid is important. But also, all of our expeditioners have to do additional functions. So they might be the mechanic or the chef or the plumber, but they also might be part of a, a search and rescue team, a fire team, a lay surgical team. We only have one doctor on the station, so if they're performing an operation, it could be the plumber who's received two weeks training. They might be the anaesthetist to have your appendix out. So there's a lot of work that goes on that's just not keeping the stations going, it's keeping people safe. And we try to balance that to get all the research done and the work done, but also enough training and preparedness so that if something goes wrong, which um, we're in a high consequence environment, people are ready to respond. I think that's the key. The, the language there is that high consequence environment. So there's not much room for error, is there, when you're looking at those different risk factors at play every day and working against them? Yeah, it's the classic thing where something that otherwise would be inconsequential. So if you're in Melbourne and you drop your glove, you can bend over and pick it up. If you drop your glove in Antarctica and it's 70 knots of wind, it's kilometres away very quickly. And then that finger or that hand becomes immobile pretty quickly then you're immobile, someone else has to look after you, or you can't use your GPS or put the rest of your clothing on properly. So things rapidly escalate or have the potential to rapidly escalate. One story I tell that people would look at things, and most of the photos in Antarctica are when the weather's good. You see these great shots of penguins, it's a sunny day. But at Wilkins Aerodrome, which is our airport, the crew there live for about six months in ISO containers, you know, insulated, and those containers are separated by about 10 metres, so we can put bulldozers between them to clear the snow away. 
And it's not that infrequent that a blizzard could occur and you can't see between those two containers. So the movement just to get from the working accommodation to the living accommodation, we've had people get lost in that 10 metre gap and having to send out a search and rescue party to try and recover people. So just the simple things of getting up and getting to the office each day can be a real challenge. We take a fairly cautious approach to how we operate, but ultimately consequence can significantly escalate and that's much of our focus is trying to frame our program in a way where we've got redundant systems, we've identified the risks, we've got critical controls in place, but that's our constant challenge. And it sounds like it is just a constant battle against nature down there for the expeditioners. But with those sort of challenges in mind, how do you go about preparing and what's the sort of regime that teams will go through in the lead up to it all? How do they prepare themselves and their teams? But then importantly, when you're going to be potentially called upon for an alternate role, which you may never have experienced, how do you prepare people mentally also for those types of environments and challenges? We're fortunate that each year, most of the people who go down to Antarctica are on relatively short-term contracts. They either are going down for what we call a winter which is between 12 and 14 months, although we've just had some people down there that were going down for 12 months and it ended up being closer to 18 months by the time they got home. We typically get several thousands of applicants and we run a process where they're shortlisted and then we take them away to 24-hour selection centres. We're obviously after people who have got a sense of adventure. They're curious, they're adaptable. They've come from backgrounds where they've been challenged and that might be in a variety of environments. They might have worked in a remote cattle station or worked in Africa. They're used to working in small group settings. Quite often we find interesting people who they've actually had failures or challenges that they've had to deal with and they've bounced back. Ultimately, you know, our common goal is to do good research in Antarctica. We're after people who fundamentally want to be a part of that and make a contribution to something greater. So we, we spend a fair bit of time in that selection process with psychometric testing, group testing, and then the preparatory work before they leave for Antarctica, it again depends on their role. So for some of the doctors we send down south, they're training for about six months before they depart. So we'll take a emergency specialist or a a GP and we'll put them through dentistry because there's no dentist down in Antarctica. We'll train the plumbers and the mechanics to be the lay surgical assistants. We'll train people to be firefighters, someone to be a hairdresser, all the (laughs) the things to keep people going. Yeah. But ultimately what we're after is building a community as well. And, you know, one of the unique aspects of going to Antarctica for particularly that prolonged period of time is once you've departed here, in most circumstances, there's not an opportunity to come back. So we spend a fair bit of time mentally preparing people for that, talking about the issues of separation, not just with themselves, but with their families. Although we've got really good communications these days and good satellite communications and people could be streaming Netflix or WhatsApping their family, that physical separation hasn't changed since the days of Sir Douglas Mawson, preparing people for that. And it's played itself out with COVID for people down in Antarctica, seeing their families deal with challenges back home, whether it's in Australia or overseas. And we've, we've got a fantastic team. We've got an in-house psych We've got a polar medical unit who are sort of best of breed and we've got ongoing collaborations with NASA, with the JPL, the Moon to Mars program where some of the remote medicine we do is being used as an analogue for a future Mars mission. So we've got some good people in that space, but ultimately we're after good people in the first instance and then we provide the training to skill them up and bridge some skill gaps. A lot of people get Antarctica in the blood and we find them coming back year after year. 
And we try to balance that mix with enough fresh people to bring new ideas and innovation to the program as well. Now, you alluded to some of those challenges that you've had. COVID has obviously affected us all dramatically over the last 12 to 18 months. How did that impact on the operations and the people involved down at the Antarctic Division? We initiated our incident response team in January last year when COVID first took off in China and by Australia Day had started preparations because our risk environment should COVID get onto a station in Antarctica would be pretty dire. We've only got that single doctor. The response would overwhelm our medical support model quite rapidly. So we reduced the extent and scale of our program almost immediately. So we yeah, so scale back straight we up. We scale back just to reduce that risk exposure. We instigated a mandatory two-week quarantine period and when testing was available, obviously tested people, but the dramatic scaling back and then also shut down any interaction with other countries in Antarctica. Normally, we collaborate quite extensively with the French program, the American program, Norwegians, Chinese, Russians, Japanese and others. And collectively across those countries, we made decisions to effectively keep our borders closed in Antarctica just to reduce the risk of any transmission between other programs. Did you have to initiate contingencies there about evacuation in the event of as well? Yeah, yeah. I suppose we'd put in layered defences to stop COVID going down. Quarantine was obviously a big one. We worked with our contractors at the time that year. We happened to be getting a ship out of Russia to go down to Antarctica. So we had to navigate the various COVID arrangements in other cities and other countries before the ship even got here, prepared for evacuation, both from the continent by aircraft or by ship. And our polar medical team put in place the ability to isolate someone as a medical case and a COVID case and bring them back to Australia if necessary. Fortunately, we've got our hands on all the ventilation equipment we might've need and all the PCR testing and ship that down to Antarctica. But ultimately, you're still relying on a single doctor with some good telemedicine support, but it's an individual. And one of our key risks is who looks after the doctor if the doctor gets crook. Of course, yeah. We managed, thankfully, to keep our program COVID-free. A number of other programs weren't able to do that in Antarctica, both on ships and on the continent, but that was largely isolated around in the Antarctic Peninsula area. With that in mind, you said before that some had an extended stay. So those members that were stuck down there for a little bit longer, what sort of mechanisms or support mechanisms do you put in place for those people that were down there or even their families back at home? Again, multiple levels. We have a program where our org psych provides support to the individuals and the families. For those who were planning to come back in November last year, eventually they got home in April this year. So it's a, a decent extended stay. We knew early on that their stay was going to be extended, so we looked at things like providing them other training opportunities while they were down there. A group of um, expedition at Davis Station actually undertook a small boating course online so that the training provider was back in Australia and they were doing IRB training in Antarctica for when the summer took place so that when the ice broke out, they were in a position to have something to look forward to, learning new skills, and then actually get out on the sea out in the front of the station to look at killer whales, penguins and, and the like. So it was looking at different ways to keep them engaged and busy, but also other support mechanisms with their family, little things like making phone calls free to all their family and friends, just to make sure their connection was as open as possible. We don't always get it right. It's a challenge, but everything we do, we try to put that people-centric focus first and try to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's several thousand kilometres away from their family on their own and in an isolated community. 
if staff try to put that at the centre of their thinking, normally you make good decisions to, to look after people. Yeah, people first. It's one of those key principles in any crisis situation or any situation in general, I think. And, and it's becoming more apparent now around the way that organisations are preparing for preventing or responding to any incidents. But an isolation like that is, is, makes our sort of few-day lockdown seem like a breeze, doesn't it? Yeah, it was interesting that um, some of the people down on our stations were getting interviewed by networks back in Australia of what's what's some advice on being isolated? You know, how do you work <laughs> how do you work remotely? And uh, you know, a few of them got a bit of an, an, an online following. Interestingly, though, one of the benefits that came out of it it was almost a, a democratisation of working remotely. So the station leaders on each of our stations are a key part of our organisational leadership group. And quite often, if you're the only person on the end of a phone trying to join in with a, a meeting back here in Hobart or in the rest of Australia, they were the odd person out. But actually, they were far easier to engage and their contributions were a lot easier because everyone was in the same boat. Mm. But it's a remarkable leadership experience for each of those people who go and lead a community through that. And you know, there, there's no respite. They're in the office with them, in the field with them, and then they're also in the same dining room the same rec area for 18 months without a, a moment to sort of get away from it all. So it, it's a, a unique experience for them. Yeah, it brings it into perspective. It certainly does. Now, with some of those guys that were down there on the 18 months now, roll forward to the, the 5th of April. So just last month, you had the incident on the ship on the way back. Was a number of those people from that expedition, were they some of those members that have been down there over that extended period of time? They were. So we that was the, the second voyage for the season and it was the last visit to the continent. So that resupplied our Davis station and picked up the wintering expeditions for Davis, dropped the new crew in and then went over to Mawson station, picked up um, the returning Mawson people. Um, the ship actually couldn't get into Mawson station due to the sea ice conditions. So we had to change over the people by helicopter, do a very light resupply and then take that Mawson crew back out onto the ship. So we had the returning expeditioners from both Davis and Mawson on board. And just to get everyone some perspective around this, so, you know, the normal process would be you, you're essentially driving the ship in, mooring there at harbour, people are jumping on board. You're adding another level of risk, another level of complexity when you're looking at the helicopter operations. What are you guys doing behind the scenes to prepare for those things and then also monitor and manage that level of complexity that starts to occur, especially when you're so remote? I suppose it starts well beforehand. So the fact that we had helicopters down there, that decision was taken 12 months beforehand and we actually wintered over helicopters on the chance that we knew that it was going to be a late resupply into Mawson Station and the sea ice might not allow the ship to get in. So almost 18 months beforehand, some of that preparation took place. We winterised helicopters, um, stored them through an Antarctic winter so that the ship, when it arrived, could pick them up. We'd taken the crew down. And so I suppose it's looking at those risks, in some cases, a year or two in advance. And that's one of the things that characterises the program in that you quite often only get one shot at doing these things. So resupply can only really occur in a very small window when the sea ice and the temperature and the conditions allow. And if you forget something, there's no Bunnings to to head to to get the spare. So you've it's a very deliberate process. We don't always get it right, but we make sure that during that period, you're setting up the next station in the community for success. 
We've got a couple of critical things that must occur during that time period. Um, there's things that have an annual cycle to them that you just can't miss. But much of the work we do in Antarctica is about moving energy around. So it's taking fuel down. For the case of Davis Station, it's about 1.1 million litres um, to resupply the station. We've, we've got a, a four kilometre hose and a pump that's laid over the water and we pump ashore about 1.1 million litres of fuel and that sets up the station to keep warm, keep um, enough water on supply for the, for the 12 months ahead. For Mawson Station, um, we knew there was a risk that we wouldn't be able to get fuel in. So the year beforehand, we made sure that the station had enough fuel to last a, another year if we missed out. And similarly, each of the stations, we're putting contingency food for an additional year um, should a resupply not occur. So, But in the case of Mawson Station, fortunately, we've got a great collaboration now with the Australian Defence Force. Um, we've trialled over the last few years a C-17 airdrop capability. And on a number of times now, we've used C-17s with air-to-air -air refuelling and pushed loads out the back that then are recovered by the teams near a station during a, from a landing zone, and then that can provide additional capability. And we're planning that operation for um, in the coming months for Mawson to top up their resupply. That'll get them through for um, hopefully until about Australia Day next year. Now, I know how meticulous you are as a planner, so this just must appeal to your senses every day, thinking about these things and the advanced planning that needs to go into it. You know, how much have you learnt from this or how much have you taken from your previous career in the military? And I suppose you must be learning new stuff every day about what to do and what to think about and the risks and how you're going to treat them. I'm not a good planner. <laughs> but, um, you are very meticulous, though, no, Charlton. No. I do know <laughs> We're fortunate. We've got some fantastic people who know Antarctica inside out and they're, they're the good planners. They've got the eye for what are the systems, what are the relationships between various systems or tools or things that need to be on station and and they're thinking ahead of what, how could this play out, what, what are the skill sets we need amongst our teams in Antarctica 12 months or 18 months ahead and that that's the constant challenge. And the planning is quite active in that, for example, we've got some wind turbines at Mawson Station. The energy production for those are in the mix that then allow that station not to be um, or not need to have been resupplied for 12 months. But then the, one of the wind turbines um, became US. So then that team can then go away and do the planning of, well, what are the implications for the energy loads on station? So. We're fortunate we've got some really good and experienced people who take care of that. For everyone's benefit, US means not the United States. That's unserviceable. Old habits die hard, don't they, mate? Yeah, yeah. As we transition from COVID-19 to the new normal, are you re-evaluating your business continuity and crisis management practices? You'll need resilience software you can trust. Thankfully, Noggin's next generation 2.0 incident management platform is here to help. Whether it be managing a pandemic, a natural disaster, a corporate crisis, a safety incident, or a major security event, Noggin helps organizations seamlessly transition from business as usual to crisis mode. With dedicated solutions for business continuity, crisis management, work safety, emergency management, operational security, and case management, Noggin is best positioned to support you in your time of need. Learn more at www.noggin.io. 
when that incident did happen on the ship. So we want to sort of talk a little bit about that and what happened behind the scenes in particular. So can you talk us through what happened on ship with the fire and then subsequently what sort of comes into play? What's the sort of system that you've got that comes together to respond to such an incident? Now, from memory, you're about 1,700 nautical miles south of Perth, was it? Yeah, the, the ship was about four days out of Mawson, so still about 12 days to get to uh, Perth. Yeah, 12 days now, yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's a long way from anywhere. Um, perhaps by going back a step, we unfortunately, because of the, the type of environment we work in, um, incidents are relatively frequent and we err on the side of initiating um, our incident response team as the default position for nearly everything. So, for example, if we lose um, satellite communications to a station, our first response is to initiate our incident response team. It could be a relatively minor medical issue on station, we'll initiate our um, incident response team. So the, the team itself is quite well rehearsed and a lot of the, the follow-on actions are developed in protocol. So we normally, once the escalation of an incident occurs, uh, place a go slow over the rest of the program to mitigate other actions or other incidents occurring. Um, that's a matter of course. So we've identified in our planning a number of key risks to the program. And for each of those scenarios, we have standard protocols that are rehearsed each year or more frequently. So it might be around an aircraft issue, a ship issue, someone being lost, a medical incident or a fire. So they're, they're the scenarios we, we focus on because we've found over, over history, unfortunately, they're the most frequently um, used. So in this case, you know, it was a, a phone call just after two o'clock. I was up in the central highlands of Tasmania. Um, and at that point, it was a phone call that we've just been informed We've got a fire on board the ship. We still haven't accounted for the people. The fire's been actively fought. We're about to notify relevant authorities um, and that clearly then initiate our incident management team and um, we were connected virtually an hour later to, to start our processes um, across the program to get our incident management underway. Are you following an AIMS-based structure? I presume you're tying in with AMSA. Any other agencies that you need to really queue in with on that initial activation? Yeah, yeah. So our, our models, uh, AIMS model, um, it'd be familiar to most people. There's nothing particularly special about it. It's been adapted to our context, um, but at, on our stations, uh, for our stations on our ships and in the field, we have emergency response teams. We've got incident management teams on stations on our voyages in the field, and then our head office um, incident response. We call it our crisis management and recovery team, but it's all around it, built around an AIMS model. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and we we have an MOU in place with AMSA and we've got MOUs in place with a, a range of other government agencies. Due to the nature of where we operate, um, Australia's search and rescue maritime zone um, extends down to the South Pole. There's few other organisations that have got capability to respond. So there's those issues that where we're responding to ourselves and then there's those issues where we're responding to other countries or commercial operators. So occasionally there'll be fishing vessels in the, the coast off Antarctica. It could be cruise vessels. It could be other aircraft flying from other countries or medical evacuations from other bases. And one of the, the key issues in Antarctica is quite often programs don't have a full suite of capabilities available to themselves at any one time. And there's a really good collaborative 
atmosphere amongst countries to help out whenever you can. So an example was last season, we had to evacuate someone from Antarctica. It required collaboration with the Chinese Antarctic program, who when their ship was near Davis Station, lent us a helicopter to connect the station to a plateau. From that plateau, we made a skiway. And then we pre-positioned a US aircraft from about 3,000 kilometres away to fly over to that station to then fly that person back to our runway to get them back to Australia. So that, that collaboration between the countries is one of the hallmarks of working in Antarctica. So when you start to spin that whole engine up, what is the location? Do you have a war room that you set yourselves up in? Can you explain to the audience what sort of comes together behind the scenes for some of these responses? And AIMS, for everyone's benefit, is the Australasian Inter-Service Incident Management System. And AMSA is the Australian Maritime Safety Authority. That's correct. That's correct, yeah. 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 <laughs> so I'd like to say we had something sophisticated like a war room, but we, we do have um, an operations uh, room which has some pretty basic facilities, but it, it's largely gives us access to communications with our ships, our planes, with the other agencies we work with. But I suppose the key thing we prepare by, we've got a a reasonably mature set of standard operating procedures, a crisis management um, response manual. We have very clear roles and responsibilities of the functions of people who perform activities under that. And we look to rehearse that on a a realistic sense um, annually. But many of the people, the core group, would have been working in that space for, for many years in, and in some cases decades. So there's a, a core cadre of people who are able to um, provide that core capability. And one of the biggest challenges for us is we find that most of our incidences, because of where they're conducted, the duration of them is quite prolonged. And it's that classic example of the initial response in that immediate 24, 72, 96 hours, and then being able to sustain that for a week or two weeks or longer as the the incident unfolds. So we've got, in some areas, got some really good depth and we're always looking to, you know, train, work up new people into those functions. What have you found has been a sort of average time on most of the incidents you've been involved with over the years? So we've had the same sort of questions and same sort of feedback from some of the other participants previously, but what's been the sort of average time that you've found that the CMT or... The cross management team might have been activated. Yeah, I, I suppose the spread. Some, some are. Uh, it, it tends to be. It's it's difficult to generalise, but it tends to be if a relatively minor incident quite often is resolved in in a twenty four hour cycle. They're the relatively simple, straightforward ones, and then it seems that it it's the others are more prolonged. And normally, seven to ten days is quite often a period in which it takes to resolve an issue. So it could be a aircraft that's had a heavy landing deep in the field in the interior of Antarctica by the time search and rescue a position, by the time you get another aircraft off another country um, to survey the landing area that you might respond to, typically it could be a week to two weeks to, to actually get people back to safety. So that's the one of the challenges of operating just in that, it's just big distances. And I think to give an example, to fly between Casey Station and Mawson Station, that's the equivalent of flying from Melbourne to Noosa and we're doing that in um, small turboprop aircraft that you know would normally be only flying a you know from Melbourne to I don't know Swan Hill or you know they're short commuters but they're yeah they're flying over extended periods. 
Yeah, and each time they have to fly, they have to refuel. I'm presuming they're doing that en route. So planning for all that is just a, you know, just adds another layer of complexity to everything you're doing, doesn't it? Yeah, but it, I suppose we constrain our operations to that reality. So we 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 do take we do take a conservative approach to what we bite off in terms of distances for fuel cam- uh, field camps to deploy to. We always. Um, operate twin in, uh, twin helicopter operations so that should one airframe become uh, unavailable, we can recover that team with the other airframe. So we do take a conservative approach to how we deploy and operate teams in the field. It's just that, yeah, the consequences are pretty high if you, you get it wrong. Um, so we we endeavour to not be at the en- edge of the envelope unless it, it's absolutely critical for more that um, responding to an incident. So... And that, that constrains our science in Antarctica and sometimes it does bring up a bit of tension between the appetite for risk between our program and some other countries' programs as well. No doubt, no doubt. That would be a fascinating discussion to be involved in, your appetite for risk across the board. I know that uh, all risk appetite statements. So having gone through some of those and going through with some of the customers and, and a not-for-profit that I'm involved with, it's, a, it's often a, a difficult discussion to try and really qualify or quantify that. So I'd love to sit in on one of those uh, one day and see the outcomes. Yeah, particularly when where consequences for a significant proportion of your activities high um, and most frameworks might say, well, that has to be escalated to a board, that might have to be esca- – and we've got station leaders in Antarctica who have to be able to make decisions um, rapidly to respond to incidents and issues where we need to enable them and trust their judgment to – to produce an outcome and that, yeah that that requires a conversation with other agencies and even within our own organization around exposing people to what the nature of the environment is and how we prepare our our leaders in antarctica to make those decisions and then to where we can back their judgment and let them run their the operations to to do what they need to do how much does trust play a role in that discussion and those decisions yeah or you know you're sending away um a station community for a year or 18 months and those leaders who were preparing and sending away, you have you have to trust them. You've got to be able to trust their judgment, their style and approach to leading. And of course, we're supporting them through that journey. We're, we're working with them in their preparation to depart. And we're fortunate, we, we are able to recruit some outstanding people to the program, but ultimately if they're on the ground, they, they know the people they've got, they know the headspace they're in, the skill composition they've got in their teams, and you have to you have to be able to trust them to to do what they need to do. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, that's what part of your preparation is, is really about selecting the right people for the right factors that will come into play. And you mentioned before about the resilience that each of them show, the adaptiveness that they have. It's truly an application of adaptive leadership for these people out there operating on their own, remote, isolated in some of the most hostile conditions on this globe. So if you have trust in their capability, then ideally they shouldn't be there to start with. Yeah. I stand in sort of admiration of people who take on these roles. They've got to form and keep a community cohesive in that environment. And that that takes a particular type of leadership style, which builds people, you know, when you know that... Um, person who might be going through a rough patch or might not be performing as well as you know, you would expect. It's not like a normal work environment where you can say, well, actually, yeah, there's somewhere else that you might want to choose to work or there's 
we can send you off to work in a different team or do something different. They've got to build and work with those people for another six months or 12 months and keeping that cohesive community together is one of the key challenges. And then at the same time, being able to flick a switch to respond where um, community is important but has to be put to one side to respond to emergency or to get a an operational task done that requires some fairly directive control to, to get things done. So they've, they've got to be adaptable to what, what that situation dictates. Yeah, we've sort of been talking about it with clients more recently about the different sort of styles required at different certain situations and and adaptive is really at the top of the pyramid and you've probably got proactive and collaborative, but all of those are on a foundation of trust and anything below that trust line is where you need to be directive at certain times or you just need to be able to flex given the situation. Preparing someone for those types of mental challenges, let alone the leadership challenges, how are you actually finding ways to prepare them for that, to know that they're going to be the right person and entrust them when they are confronted by that situation? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, look, we we don't always get it right. Yeah, you know, we we it's one of those things. We so for example, next week we're going through our station leader selection process. So um, a station leader would have applied. We'll get seven several hundred applicants. They'll be shortlisted. They'll then do video interviews. They then get sent to a 24-hour selection centre. And then ultimately we bring about 20 of them together for a week-long selection centre and that runs next week. And I suppose what we're trying to do during that 24-hour cycle or 96-hour cycle is to see the true self. We're after people who are fundamentally, we want to um, send people down there who they've got good self-awareness. They're their approach to things are mature, they're inclusive, they realise that psychological safety for the team they're going to lead is going to be paramount and they've got the self-awareness to respond in different ways to different people. We're looking for open and transparent sort of decision-making amongst the community and they've got to really have a community-building approach to their leadership style. They've got to be tolerant, patient, empathetic. All those all those foundational skills have got to be evident and um, the process, we've got a number of people here, whether it's in the org site space, um, our HR space, and we've got a, a smattering of former military people who work here as well, who have worked in a range of military recruitment processes. And yeah, they bring all those sort of experiences to the table to try and find a, a good mix of station leaders. So it's a bit like the old selection board. There is a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's been proven to work, hasn't it, I suppose, in yeah. some cases. <laughs> yeah. It chose us all right, didn't it? <laughs> well, others can judge on that. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, mate, that's fascinating. And it's, and it's fascinating to hear that sort of insight because the challenge you find with business is leaders are sort of chosen because of their professional mastery and they sort of evolve into positions of leadership. Would you say you have that luxury of selecting these people into these leadership roles or do they have to have had that experience of operating in that environment beforehand before they're leading a community down there? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. And we, we find some people who might have worked and led teams in remote environments or um, and it could be in a variety of sectors. It could be an expedition cruise leader to the Arctic working in the commercial tourism industry. It could be person who's led a remote mine site. Um, some people come out of the, you know, it could be state emergency services, police, military background, but also we've had people who've come from really diverse backgrounds. It could be a, 
film and television producer. It could be someone who's worked for Department of Foreign Affairs in foreign missions somewhere. But across the board, we're looking for that core authentic leadership capability amongst each of them. And then we try to bring together teams that might complement the skills in that group. So it might be someone who might not have had as much operational leadership experience, but we have a, a position on station, which is a, the equivalent of a operations officer who can run the day-to-day -day business. And that, you know, then the station le leader can really focus on that community approach to things. Sometimes we get people who have done numerous winters before in Antarctica. So they, they come quite often ready formed, but in between their stints down south, we look to upskill them or keep them fresh with contemporary thinking or put them on different leadership um, opportunities and courses. We've got most of our folk down there at the moment while they're in Antarctica are, are working on themselves. So it might be uh, one of our station leaders at the moment is doing his executive MBA. Another one might be doing some other programs on whatever it is to keep them active in thinking about their leadership style and approach. And we're taking that approach more frequently now with our frontline leaders. And we're working with a few companies at the moment to develop a package for our trades leaders. So these are the trades group, could be the senior mechanic, the, the senior field guide and the like. Um, to upskill them before they go down south as well. What's sort of been the biggest leadership lesson you've learnt working with the Australian Antarctic Division? That's a good question. Look, it sounds trite and it sounds like a cliche. Years ago, when I thought I was putting people first, it was my concept of putting people first, but I realised I actually had to go a lot deeper to truly put people first in my thinking. And my concepts of what I think people needed for their support, say if it was psychological safety, perhaps needed far more support and a framework around them than I thought was needed initially. And I, I made some misjudgments in terms of thinking, oh, something would be adequate uh, when it's not. But I suppose some of the leadership lessons I've learned by observing others who have worked in the program, and it might be just a little thing. It could be a mechanic who's about to be the driver to take a group of people from the runway to the station and it might be just the the degree of quiet assurance that they provide in their briefing to a, a group of people who are unfamiliar with Antarctica it's their first trip down and it just sows, sows a seed of assurance and confidence in those other people so it could be all those little things it, it, it might not be the the big earth-shattering sort of revelation, but it's just seeing those little things and they're the things we try to capture and, and share amongst the organisation. Would you say that your own observation was, was it based on a, you know, an unconscious bias or was it more of a, you know, your own background or our similar backgrounds where, where mission first was often the key sort of driver? So often you'd sort of subordinate your own feelings or your own emotions or those of your team to really zero in on that mission. Was it something along those lines that you were sort of explaining before? To be honest, I think a, a bit of it is. Um, and as we all get older and wiser and dealing with kids or- And greyer. Yeah, and greyer. Um, hopefully we get a bit more mature in our approach. We'd like to think so. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'd hope so. And ultimately the, the mission is important. However, just getting that mix right of supporting people and recognising we-, we we're always trying to get diversity in our our teams that travel to Antarctica. People will come with different backgrounds, different experiences, and you you can't just have a a single 
approach that's going to really work for everybody. And I suppose um, having those conversations with teams to understand the people we're sending, to understand them better before they go down south, you're in a far better position to support them while they're away, regularly checking in with them because things can quite often change. And, you know, and it could be someone who's, it might be an issue at home that they've got no control over while they're in Antarctica. And, you know, someone could go from a high performer to having real troubles in adapting to things and sort of just understanding that and dealing with it in a way that, you know, if, if empathy is first, um, if that's your first default position, quite often you're on a good path, I think. I might, might not have done that in the past. <laughs> I think we've all been in those sort of circumstances at different times, mate, so no. That definitely resonates with me, at least anyway. So one of the questions I always ask every interviewee as part of the podcast is if you had a chance to sit down with someone who's led through a crisis in the past and whether they're alive or no longer with us, who would that be and why? I should have listened to more of your podcasts before to know that you're going to ask me that question. But, read it um, <laughs> to the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, because it's... Um, in an Antarctic field, I'd, I'd be fascinated to have talked to Sir Douglas Mawson. You know, and you think the challenges he had of motivating and, and really surviving such an environment where um, the crisis effectively lasted for two to three years, um, that would be fascinating. I've recently been reading a, um, one of the many books about Shackleton and his experience of leading his team through their adventures. You know, they'd be two fascinating individuals in the, the Antarctic space and they're, they're iconic figures uh, for anyone who works on Antarctic issues. And I think anyone who is a professional in that crisis management space would benefit from reading some of their, their seminal works, I think. And although the, the context might be a century ago, um, some of the lessons are remarkably salient today, whether it's about putting people at the centre of all your thinking, looking for innovation as a leader being optimistic, um, giving a, a sense of confidence to your team through that process, but without being cheerful to be sort of saccharine. It, it's got to be a, an enthusiasm that's genuine. Yeah. Cautious optimism, I think, is yeah. the way it's yeah. described. So I'd, I'd be fascinated to talk to both of them to um, pick their brains about how they approach things. Well, uh, we've certainly been fascinated with this conversation today, and I'm sure everyone out there will agree. So Charlton Clark, thank you very much for joining us on Crisis Talks. Grant, thanks very much. That concludes Episode 3, Series 3 of Crisis Talks. In the next episode of Crisis Talks, I'll be talking about the importance of purpose and how that forms the basis of crisis leadership. In the next few episodes, I'll be presenting some of the recent findings from my webinars covering purpose, preemptive prepare, the key three elements that contribute to being left of boom. After that, we'll also unpack the elements that work right of boom, which are respond, reassure and recover. I'll explore how these concepts come together to create a resilient organisation and how you can go about preparing yourself to lead with confidence in a crisis.